I was at this conference and there were a lot of great things that were said and I learned a lot and I was stretched in a lot of ways and encouraged and refreshed in a lot of ways. Um, But one of the things that was said that really has stuck with me was this. One of the guys was speaking and he was talking about um, planting churches and new churches and things like that. And, And he gave this challenge here. He asked, he said, is the church that you are a part of Um, that you are helping to pastor, that you are helping to lead. If you weren't a pastor at that church, would you actually go to that church? (laughs) That's a good question, all right? And the thought just hit me as soon as he said that, without a doubt, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it just sent me down this trail of thinking about all of the reasons why I love this group of people right here. And why I love getting to be a part of this church. I love the way that you care for each other. I love the way that um, that as Gary is going through what he's going through, people from this church have been in to be with him to make sure he's not walking by himself. Not because it's their job description to do it, but because their heart is, is making them do it. Because they love him and they're his friend. And I love that. I love the way that you as a church have walked with Jason over these last several months and the way that we get to celebrate with him together as a family too at the just such encouraging news um, and great news from the scan he had last week. And I love the way that you love people who are far away from God. And I love the way that you understand that those people aren't actually far away from God. They might look like it, but God is right there with them pursuing them And I love how you want to be a window of that for them. I love how you are a glimpse into what the kingdom looks like in so many ways. I love being a part of this church. So thank you for being who you are and for letting me be a part of this family with you. And let's ask God to continue to push us and stretch us and take us into places that will make us uncomfortable. And like we prayed last week, that people would trash us, that people would question our character because of the way that we love people, that we love people so much, that we find the edges of grace so much that people will be left scratching their heads wondering why would they live like that. That's my prayer for us as a church, that God would continue to use us to push the envelope on how far his grace goes, on how far redemption goes because we believe that grace is real we believe that it's real and if that's something that you need this morning then we'd love to talk with you about that god loves you god loves you it's one of the first things we ever learn about him is probably the last thing we'll ever understand god loves you god loves you that's where we've been through this study in the book of romans on specifically chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2. Paul has been laying this out. He's writing this to the church in Romans. And he's been building his case throughout the whole book. Chapter after chapter after chapter. Where he talks about the reality of sin. And the wrath that we deserve. Right? He talks about the wages of sin is death. And that's reality. That is the truth. That is real. The wages of sin is death, he says. Wages In other words, that's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. That's what we've got coming to us. 
And yet he comes back and he says, but the free gift of God, something we don't deserve, something that is given to us, not because of what we've done, but because of who God is. He says the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he sets this up for us. The fact that we deserve wrath and yet God comes to us and offers us mercy and grace. Beautiful. Over and over, he hits, he hits at this. He says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And he talks about the fact that we were enemies of God, and yet God brings us into reconciliation through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we're reconciled to God, he says, through the death of his son, how much more are we reconciled to him through the life of his son, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God brings us into relationship with him because of what he has accomplished in the life and the death and the life again of Jesus Christ. And you and I are living in the wake of the resurrection. You and I are living in that echo of the empty tomb. And that's what Romans deals with. It deals with the ramifications of the resurrection. Now that God has accomplished this in Jesus Christ. What are we to make of this? How should we live in response to this? And that's where we get to this key turning point of the entire book, right here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Pounding away, mercy of God, mercy of God, mercy of God, the love that none of us has earned or deserved, but simply because of who God is. And then he hits this point in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore... In view of that, therefore, in view of that, live like this, he says. In view of God's mercy, I urge you, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Living sacrifices, laying your lives down, laying your lives down and letting them be set ablaze living in response to grace, but at the same time living as a beacon of grace for others to see and to be drawn to because of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ and in your life. Offer your bodies, he says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is worshiping with authentic hearts and fully engaged spirits. Our lives lived out as worship. Our lives become our liturgy, as we talked about last week. Every move of prayer, everything we do, a song, our lives, a message, a sermon, a response, an invocation. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This is how we should live, he says, to live as worship in response to what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now we come to this next piece, to the final piece that we're going to be talking about here. And here in chapter 2, where he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is what he's been building to 
here, okay? When we talk about this, we're going we're gonna to pull out some pieces here and look at them a, a little more closely, starting with this idea where he says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. And he puts that um, intentionally up against this idea of don't be conformed, but be transformed, okay? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he puts these two intention, intentionally, intention against each other. Do not be conformed is where he starts, okay? How is something conformed? How does that happen? That happens when outside pressure pushes against a thing, right? When outside pressure pushes against a thing and reshapes it to fit and to comply with a certain pattern, all right? That's what is happening, he says. Don't be conformed. Don't let the outside pressures push you, press you in to a pattern that you don't belong in. Don't be squeezed into a mold that you weren't made to fit into is what he's saying be to be made to comply and to fit a pattern you weren't meant to fit i think every one of us could tell stories from junior high school of when we lived this out right we wanted so hard to fit in and so we tried some ridiculous things to do that okay i have pictures that i've tried to destroy and i'm thankful that like Facebook didn't exist when I was in middle school because you would still see pictures of me with like lines shaved into my head and things like that, all right? (laughs) Not good. Not good to come of age during the time of vanilla ice, all right? (laughs) Not good. Do not be conformed, he says, okay? The outside pressures pressing against you to make you fit and to comply with a pattern that you weren't made to fit into. Outside pressing in, okay? Outside pressing in to the pattern of this world. Okay, so that's the next piece. What does he mean when he talks about the pattern of this world? What is the pattern of this world, okay? Here's what he's talking about. The pattern of this world is set up like this. It's set up to be self-centered, okay? It's set up to be self-serving, and it's set up to be self-advancing. We see that all around us. Every day we run into this. Every day we have to wrestle with the temptation to fall into that exact same pattern. The politics of your office hang on this idea of being self-centered, of being self-serving, and of being self-advancing. The politics of your office, the politics of your classroom, the politics of your dorm room operate in this same way, okay? And this, he says, is not the pattern of Christ. The pattern of Christ is, in fact, the exact opposite. Instead of being self-centered, we become Christ-centered. We become Christ-centered. Instead of being self-serving, we become God and others serving And it just doesn't match up. It looks so strange against the pattern that is so normal on this side. And instead of being self-advancing, we're consumed with being gospel-advancing and kingdom-advancing. And these are the opposing patterns that we see at work in the world. This is the way that the world operates. This is the system that we're so tempted to be swept up in. 
that is so difficult to fight against. But Christianity is a countercultural resistance movement against the system of the world. And instead of being self-centered, we're Christ-centered, self-serving, we're God and others serving, self-advancing, we're gospel and kingdom advancing. And it looks strange in the world around you, but this is what we're called to live. Christianity is a countercultural resistance movement. It is. And it's not just about the things that we are against, but it's also what we are for. And it's more about what we are for, that we live our lives in this way. We live our lives as an alternative story, letting the world see what the other life can look like, letting the world see what transformation looks like. Instead of being conformed, we live transformed. And it's something that is compelling for the world around us. It's not just about what we're against. It's also what we live for, and it's more about that. So we talked about at the very first message where we began this school year together, we talked about the role of the prophet and that the role of the prophet and the role of Christians is, is for us to be prophets who proclaim a message. But even more than that, we're also called to be protagonists that live a story. We are prophets that proclaim a message, but even more, we are protagonists that live a story. That's what we're called to be a part of, a countercultural resistance movement, living out an alternative story of what the pattern of Christ in this world can look like, of what a transformed life can look like. In view of God's mercy, we live like this. In view of God's mercy, we live like this. So that's what we're talking about here with the idea of the pattern of the world. Now, the next piece, what does it mean to be transformed, okay? If to be conformed is is to be pressed in, the pressure's pushing against us to reshape us, to make us fit and comply, it's this outside-in kind of pressure, outside-in kind of movement. What does transformed mean, okay? Now, the word that Paul uses here, we've talked about this a, a few weeks back, The word that Paul uses here is a really interesting word, okay? In Greek, it's the word metamorpho, okay? Which is where we obviously get the word. Well done. All right, sweet. Exactly, okay? So it's this word that we've borrowed, and it's this idea that we've borrowed. And we understand when we talk about metamorphosis, we're not talking about just a growth, okay? We're not just talking about a shift and a change. We're talking about an all-encompassing change, right? A completely different kind of change. And immediately our mind goes to biology and we think about the emergence of the butterfly, right? And this beautiful idea that's at work there. And interestingly enough, in the early Christian circles, they used the image of a butterfly to represent the Christian life. That's exactly what it is. It's a metamorphosis. It's a change into something entirely new and far more beautiful and compelling than it ever was before. Complete change, metamorphosis, the symbol of the butterfly to represent life in Christ. It's a beautiful idea. So, so that's what that word means. It, it points to our idea of metamorphosis, this utter complete kind of change. Now, this word right here is only used four times in the entire New Testament, twice by Paul. Okay, Paul uses it twice in this passage, of course, and then in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 18. 
when he talks about how with unveiled faces we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And so not just the idea of being transformed, but now he gives us the direction in which we're being transformed. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Hold on to that thought for a little bit, okay? The next uh, other two times that it's used in the New Testament are in the Gospels. It's used once in Matthew. It's used once in Mark. And it's used during the stories of Jesus' transfiguration, where Jesus goes onto the mountain and he takes his inner circle of disciples with him up on the mountain. And in that moment, he is transfigured, it says. That's the word it uses, transfigured. In the original language, it's this word right here. It's the same word. He is transformed. And what the disciples see is the character of Christ being revealed. And they see the glory of Christ breaking through. And they're taken back by it. They're taken back by it. Now, here's what the deal is. It's not this outer glory that comes and is put on Christ in that moment. It's the reality of Christ shining through in that moment. That's what transformation is. And when Paul talks to us about being transformed, how can we know we're being transformed? When the character of Christ begins to break through our lives. Transformation is the opposite of being conformed because in conformed, it's about outside pressing in. Being transformed It's about the character of Christ breaking out of us. It's about an inner transformation that happens and then works its way out into every corner of our lives. That's the difference that we're seeing here. Do not be conformed, he says, to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed. Let the character of Christ break through your life. That interchange, that new life that happens in us because of what Jesus accomplishes in the cross, because of what Jesus accomplishes in the resurrection. And that same burial and, and, and new life, resurrection, he says, happens in us as well when we are caught up in the life of Christ. Through the grace of Christ, that's what happens. And the character of Christ breaks through Conform is outside in. Transformation is inside out. The character of Christ breaking out of us. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does this mean? When he talks about the renewing of the mind, it's renovation of the way we understand, of the way we perceive. It's an awakening of the imagination to be able to see the world as it really is, to be able to glimpse reality. Paul loves this idea of of, of the new mind, of the renewed mind, of the rebirth of the mind. He also talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5. Some translations will say, let your attitude be the same as Christ Jesus. But a better translation and, and other more translations will say, have the same mind as Christ. Have the same mind of Christ. Let the mind of Christ live in you and lead you and guide you and transform you. The mind of Christ. And then he goes on to lay out what that looks like. And it's such a beautiful contradiction to what the pattern of the world looks like. 
And he says, this is what the mind of Christ looks like. Christ, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Isn't that the way we live when we are self-centered, when we're self-serving, when we're self-advancing? We're always trying to grasp. But it says, Jesus had equality with God, but he did not consider that as something to be grasped. He says, but he made himself nothing. The the world tells us over and over again, make something of yourself. Seniors that are graduating, grad students that are graduating, congratulations, I'm happy for you. And probably in your graduation speech, you're going to hear something along the lines of, now go and make something of yourself. But the mind of Christ is shouting at us the exact opposite. It says, make yourself nothing. Embrace surrender. Embrace surrender. It's such a countercultural idea. Such a countercultural idea. But this is the pattern of Christ to be surrendered. To be surrendered. Now we see as it continues, it says that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Buried in the grave and dead. Then it says, but God exalted him to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You see that pattern of Christ, of that surrender and yet being brought up. Our pattern is so often self-advancing, self-serving, self-centered. And what does it end with? Fall and failure, right? The pattern of Christ is the opposite. Jesus invites us in to surrender our lives, to die to ourselves, to be buried, our sin buried, and then to experience the resurrection with him, to be brought up into new life with him. Today, we're going to get to celebrate that. That is the pattern of the life of Jesus. It is the great reversal. It takes everything we've ever known and it turns it on its head. Today, we're going to celebrate that with the baptism of two of our friends. I'm going to ask Grayson and Anna to stand up real quick. All right, I'm going to embarrass you guys. Will you stand up? Let's give these guys and. Awesome. Sweet. We're going to celebrate with them today. Immediately after church, we're going to go to Merritt's store and grill. We're going to meet there, and then we're going to make our pilgrimage down to Morgan Creek, and we're going to celebrate Anna and Grayson embracing the pattern of Christ, death, burial to sin, and being raised in the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to be an awesome time. I want you to come and enjoy that with us. Baptism is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be transformed, to be buried, the old dead and buried, the new raised up in resurrection life with Jesus Christ. That is what it looks like to have a renovation of the mind. And as we've talked about in these two verses here, Paul hammers away at the idea of our bodies, at the idea of our spirits, and now at the idea of our minds. This is an all-encompassing, holistic kind of surrender. All that we are living for Jesus Christ in response to the mercy of God accomplished in him. 
This is what we're called to be. This is how we're called to live. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world of self-serving, self-centered, and self-advancing, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have the mind of Christ awakened in you through the Holy Spirit living in you, through the resurrection life of Christ in you. This is the ramification of the resurrection, that we can live transformed lives and that every single one of us becomes a micro-movement of transformation everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, an example of what it looks like to live in view of God's mercy as transformed lives. This side, the conforming to the pattern of the world, this is the path of least resistance. This takes nothing to live this way. This side is the path of most significance. And Jesus Christ invites us to follow him in to the life he pioneered, this life of transformation that he brings us into. Therefore, I urge you, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will to see his good and pleasing and perfect will at work in your life. Amen. Today, to celebrate that transformation, we are going to focus ourselves again on God's mercy, on what he accomplished through the life and death and life again of Jesus Christ. And today, we are going to share in the family meal of communion of the Lord's Supper as we remember what he has done for us and we embrace it. We embrace it.